serious, man. You cannot be serious. That ball was on the line. Shock blew up. Oh, he's toying with him now. Hello, Chris. Hey, Caitlin, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Good, good. Uh, today's episode is about uh, one tennis writer who features prominently in your magazine. You can't make a literary tennis magazine without addressing David Foster Wallace, <laughs> as it turns out. Was this a lot of pressure for you? Like, all right, we have to have a take. We have to have a take on David yes. Foster Wallace. Yeah. Absolutely. And interestingly, and kind of against my wishes, although I'm delighted at how it turned out, we had two separate pieces about David Foster Wallace. Uh, well, not really about him, but sort of dealing, grappling with his legacy in each of the first two issues of Racket. Well, who were so pi- now I feel like I can kind of like let it go for a while. Just so people understand. So people pitched you these ideas and you were like, well, got to do it. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and the pitches were both so different and both really good. Um, that it was kind of like, well, you can't turn down a really amazing story, uh, even if it doesn't, you find a way to fit it in. And I think we did. Um, should we go back and talk about David Foster Wallace just a little bit for anybody who's not initiated? I mean, I'm assuming everyone made it through Infinite Jest, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Jesus. It took me three times to tr- to do it. And I liked it as much as you can like a book that you took three times to get through. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. David Foster Wallace, no, I mean, it was, it's no Ulysses, but it's not an easy read. That one in particular. Uh, he wrote a couple of other fiction uh, <laughs> novels, Broom of the System. I'm trying to think of other ones. Um, but beloved, beloved for his literary essay um, collections, many of which appeared in like Esquire and GQ and other um, publications, and then usually collected in a series of essays. Yes. Um, uh, one famously in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again which was one of my favorite collections. Nonfiction, I feel like he's just much, much, much better, or at least much more to my taste. Right, right. No, I think he's uh, pretty great at both, but it's definitely more accessible, and on tennis in particular, because he was a pretty good player in his youth. Like, you know, not like better than your average, like, yeah, I was good on my high school team. Like, he was playing junior tournaments. Right, he was like us. Right, well, <laughs> more like you. The first example was to distinguish him from me. <laughs> oh, yes. well, okay. But yeah. yes, so he was a he was an accomplished junior athlete. Totally. Um, you know, and David Foster Wallace's writing style, you know, he's kind of like your, your quintessential digressive writer. I found reading his fiction, it was so digressive that it was hard to keep the, the, the plot together in my uh-huh. head. Mm-hmm. But with the sort of strict constraints of nonfiction, he was brilliant. And obviously writing as he did a lot on this sport that I love so much. Um, it was a really, really pleasurable read. Most people who don't know much about him, but know a little bit about, about his tennis writing, read the New York times, um, story about Federer. Uh, I think it was titled Federer as a religious experience, yep. which, which to me really sort of like illustrated what is just so transcendent about Federer's game for those of us who know what we're looking at. And even, People who don't can understand that, and it yeah. it, it, it built a bridge for it me to, to to talking about tennis in a way that m- most people couldn't. It it did, and it's also, I mean, it was written a long time ago. You forget because Federer has just played forever. But I remember reading it, and it was in Play Magazine, I think, R.I.P. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that um, uh, the part of the context that sort of you forget now is that it was coming after a time when it was like men's tennis is over. Uh, it's boring and everybody will be like Mark Philippoussis in the future. 
You know what yeah. I mean? And so it was yeah. like a celebration of the fact that like, oh, wait, actually, it's going to be great athletes and there's going to be a lot of variety. And it was great. It was like a celebration of that almost. At, at least like that's what I remember feeling when I read it. Yeah, for me too. And um, completely. And I think it it redefined, it, it cast a new lens on how to understand the Federer and Nadal and later Djokovic and Murray era that we're still grappling with, obviously, yeah, which was awesome. Um, so that is the sort of like entry point to David Foster Wallace if you've never read him on tennis before. Um, and I would argue sort of the the apex was this 1996 piece that he wrote about journeyman tennis player named Michael Joyce. Michael Joyce was like never higher, I think, ranked than the 80s. He was always on the fringes, almost making it. And uh, David Foster Wallace spent um, some time with him while he was traveling in Montreal, my hometown, right. uh, and kind of describing just the, the the angst and anxiety and margins that these players who were excellent but not quite cutting it um, were right. dealing with. Right. If you're talking about Michael Joyce, like you leave the piece feeling like he's kind of or he's you know, he coached Sharapova and he's had a pretty successful coaching career post tennis. I, like I like to think of him as like a uh, uh, like a Brad Gilbert who doesn't talk so much, like he was like a gr- <laughs> he was like a grinder that made the most of his limited talents and now helps people be as tough as him. I don't know. That's that's yeah my, yeah yeah my, for my, sure. my Michael Joyce take. Yeah, that's good, and I yeah. think that sets up nicely um, the the first interview that we did um, with the author of this piece, Sam Riches is his name, um, who checked in now 20 years later after that piece had been written with Michael Joyce and what he's up to. Right. And we should say that 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 piece is, at least for people who are into tennis writing, is what he's known for. Right. Like more than anything else by a by a wide margin. Yeah. And I and I want to just applaud Sam before we hear the the interview. So, you know, take tackling a subject of David Foster Wallace's is a pretty ballsy move. And I think he acquitted himself uh, really well. You can read it at Long Reads um, or pick it up. It's in the second issue of Racket Magazine. Cool. And then after that, we we just have a really short interview with uh, Sasha Frere Jones of music journalism, who wrote another piece in uh, in Racket. Uh, about sort of the perils of writing about tennis after David Foster left. So joining us today on the Main Drop podcast is a friend from the North, uh, a fantastic writer, um, Sam Riches. He had an incredible piece in the second issue of Racket Magazine. Um, Sam, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so you are based in Toronto, right, Tim? Uh, yes, I'm... Uh... I'm currently in Toronto. Uh, moved here three, four years ago. Well, um, it's a good place to be. I mean, it's not as good as Montreal, my hometown, but we'll give it to you. <laughs> That's um, true. I'll concede that. <laughs> so what's really fun about the piece that you wrote for Racket Magazine is it is one of the few pieces, because Racket is print only, that you can read online. Um, it was a co-publication with Long Reads. So if anybody has not read that yet longreads.com sam rich's story about michael joyce read it press pause come back and then listen to the interview because i really want to get into it okay so give us the background on michael joyce why does that name ring a bell for anybody who's a huge tennis fan most likely the david foster wall story uh the esquire story from 1996 uh strain theory later republished uh in, in his book of book of essays he was an up-and-coming player in the early 90s mid 90s he never quite panned out 
uh, in terms of you know reaching that that top tier, but um, he was uh, still an accomplished player. Now, what was always interesting to me about that story is it was not super flattering. You know, it wasn't a puff piece. Like he kind of goes hard on this guy. Essentially, my takeaway of that piece always was, you really have to give up a large chunk of your brain. Yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely. And uh, as someone that sort of operates in the in the sports world, uh, pretty pretty often, uh, you you see that it's not uncommon to see to see that uh, just because you know by the very nature of of being a, an accomplished athlete, it requires all sorts of demands beyond physical and, and mental, obviously too. But uh, yeah, he, he he was he was hard on him. He was hard on him. He was hard on him in the piece. And, and Mike, you know, had a had a tough time at first uh, coming to terms with it. And you know, it took him a few years to sort of come around to it. And um, it, it wasn't until uh, Foster Wallace died where he. Uh, it, that's when he really started to, you know, he sat down again and reread the piece and and he started to come around to it a bit more. What sort of inspired you to, to involve yourself in the David Foster Wallace, Michael Joyce saga? Yeah, so I, I reread the piece, uh, the Foster Wallace's piece, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago. And uh, when I finished, I was just wondering, you know, like what, what what's happened to this guy now? Like how, do, how does being profiled like this and in this way by such a prolific and you know uh you know famous writer how does that affect a person and uh he he was not easy to track down and when i when i started doing some digging you know a lot of the some some feedback i was getting was that you know he wasn't very he wasn't a big fan of the media he wasn't a big fan of doing interviews and uh so i had to sort of you know the first time i got him on the phone he called me actually i was i was doing some grocery shopping and I was coming home and I just, you know, I had like 20 bags in my arms and all of a sudden my <laughs> phone goes off and I look down and I got a duck out. I ended up sitting down underneath this big tree in a, on a soccer field, like uh, off the side of the road. And we ended up talking for, I think two hours on that first phone call. And, uh, he was, uh, you know, he, he was, he wasn't super receptive at first, but the more we talked and, uh, the more he sort of warmed up to it and the stories followed him you know his whole his whole life and i think he's he hasn't really had for whatever reason no one had contacted him about sort of you know the aftermath of it and i think he appreciated it in in some way just having the outlet to talk about it huh wow how what is he like as a talker i mean in the piece one of the things that's so interesting is he he still kind of comes off not like incredibly intellectual, and I don't mean that as an insult, just more like he's he seems like kind of a, a a very straightforward kind of guy. Yeah, I mean, from from that initial phone call, you know, up until uh, you know, carrying through when we were in Quebec, uh, Quebec City together, he was always straight to the point. You know, there's he just he doesn't he doesn't uh, he doesn't be he doesn't he doesn't say anything he doesn't need to say, and. Uh, uh, it, it works for him. Uh, it works for him in that space, but you know, he, he is still fully dedicated to tennis and tennis is still the world that he operates in. And, and he knows, he knows how to do that and he knows what he has to do in that space. And that's what he does. It's a little surprising that David Foster Wallace was so dr- drawn to sports. I think he has an essay about the Tracy Austin biography where he basically says like athletes can't articulate exactly uh, or, or explain their sport that well. Uh, especially the good ones, because it happens on this sort of level that's not particularly verbal. Like, do you think 
like was there a way in which Joyce offered him kind of uh like a little bit of a blank slate? I mean, I don't I don't know if it if it's necessary for success, but I think it it helps at least if you can, you know, uh sort of turn your brain off a little bit when you're when you're participating and when you're playing because you know, sort of hone your focus in and not be distracted by uh by everything else that's going on, said it. But it was a baseball player that said something like, that, you know, there's a outfielder. Uh, outfielders have a lot of time to think and just destroy themselves. Mm. And I think that's, you know, by the nature of, uh, of the sport they play in their position, they're not always getting lots of action out there. But I think uh, with Joyce, um, you know, he when he played tennis or even now when he's coaching, he is just he's he's incredibly focused on on what's happening. Uh, in the moment, you know, and then when you get him off the court and try and talk to him, it might take him a while, a while to sort of come back, <laughs> come back. But... Interesting. So he's yeah, still he got just... that like pro level laser focus. Yeah, for sure. He was a whole, you know, when we were, when we were sort of like uh, hanging around the hotel or walking around the city or something, he was, he was, he was a totally different person than when he was actually on the practice court or at Laval at the stadium he was just yeah he was another person he was just on another level of just uh it, it surprised me at first actually because the first time we went down to the practice together it was just like he, he became an, another person tell me more about that so you went up to Quebec uh Quebec City I assume to um yeah. to a sort of minor tournament it was was it a future tournament or was it a a, a main uh, uh it was Kind of low, low key, certainly not like one of the big, big tournaments. It's, it's a growing tournament. They, I think uh, Jeannie Bouchard was in, was the number one seed here, um, and they had there was some there were some good players there, but it's still it's not. Joyce told me that he, it's not quite uh, the tournament that it could be or that it should be, perhaps, and that there there's some changes happening within the organization of it, I guess they're hoping the next couple of years to grow it, to be a, a, a bit larger. What's that scene? Like you show up on the scene on a, I'm guessing the weekend sort of before the tournament kicks off and sweatpants yeah. and practice courts <laughs> and hotel lobbies, like the kind of, that kind of a vibe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I showed up, uh, uh, I think, yeah, it was a couple of days before the tournament began and I went straight to the hotel lobby to meet them and they had been, their flight had been delayed by like three hours or something. Like they're, they'd they'd been in transit for like 12 or 13 hours or something yeah. crazy so he was just totally wiped and uh the first night he gave me a couple minutes still we just sat down in the lobby of the hotel and just sort of you know try to talk to him about uh what i was just hoping to accomplish in the next couple of days a few days that i had him and uh, you know he was he, he he was really welcoming to me and he was sort of on board from from the start because you know, I couldn't really give him a, a clear, direct <laughs> summary of what the story was going to be or what I was going to do with the material, but just that I just wanted to, to get to know him a bit more and, and, you know, talk about his transition from playing the coaching and also and also the Foster Wall story. And I'm assuming it's not because you you didn't want to tell him, it's because you didn't quite know. Yeah, I was. I mean, when I came home from this this uh i have sort of this neurosis sometimes my reporting where i have to put everything that i get into like one giant word doc and then start mm -hmm. whittling it away and i think i had forty thousand words jesus so, <laughs> for the lay person that's like a that's like half a book basically yeah it was, it was way too many the story started to reveal itself once i started to unpack it all but 
it was it was kind of overwhelming at first so i didn't that's why i didn't have a, a <laughs> concise summary right away about what well, okay so i'm gonna put you on the spot now because at the beginning of our, our chat here i in, instructed people to hit pause and, and read the story on long reads if they did not what could you tell me like what's your sort of you know, cohesive through line of, of what you now think the piece is after having whittled it down from 40,000 words closer to, you know, 3,000. How you make a, a lifetime in tennis and how it affects you. So we have this publishing partnership with Longreads. It's awesome. Longreads is great. Obviously, like, it's a really great showcase for all sorts of types of stories. Um, and we had established this partnership when Racket launched last summer. And, you know, the plan is to do one per issue, one sort of co-publishing. Um, and... When Mike, the editor at Long Reads, came to us and was like, oh, I have something for you guys. I have this great piece by Sam Riches. It's about Michael Joyce. And I was like, Michael Joyce, David Foster Wallace. Ah, oh, no. Because we had just done this Sasha Fur Jones piece about David Foster Wallace in the first issue. And I was really concerned. It was going to sort of telegraph that we at Racket Magazine, something that, you know, claims to be about broadening the tent and bringing in a lot of people to the tennis conversation who don't necessarily, you know, watch or play. I was like, oh, no, we're going to, like, telegraph that we're out of ideas, essentially. Michael Joyce, like, how much more is there to say? So I want you to know, just, like, candidly, that David, my my co-founder of this magazine, was like, no, 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 it's going to be great. You have to read it. And I was like, okay, great. I like dug in and I was like, Oh my God, this is so good. We have to run it. Um, and so for me, it was, it was interesting to have the dual dialogue. Was there any sort of insecurity in your mind? Yeah, no, for sure. That was early, early on for sure. That was a, that was a fear, uh, because, um, yeah, I didn't want, I, I didn't, I didn't want it to be imitative right? and I didn't want it to, uh, you know, I, I didn't want it, people to think that I was, was challenging him in some way or something and also like uh dave foster wallace i, I you know he's i admire him he's he's fantastic but i you know i i wouldn't want to uh put myself anywhere near his category you know so I, I just wanted to i just wanted to tell joyce's story because people change and like you just said the story was 20 years old and who is he now and that's that's basically what i wanted to find out well, let me, if nobody else has told you, which I, I hope they have, let me just commend you for, uh, you know, adding something really great to the canon because um, I was proud to put it in the second issue of the magazine and I really encourage people to read it because it was really great and it got a lot of traction online. So thank you again. Thank you. One, two. Wow. It happened. It worked. Yeah. It worked. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Baritone, I know and love. How's it going, man? It's going well. <laughs> anyway, so what are we wrapping about? We're talking about tennis, a subject to which you were extremely God. well-versed. I mean, what tone I know, really. We were going to ask you what you think about the rankings and if you think there are any, um, you know, what kind of predictions you have for the 2017 season. <laughs> let's let's dive in. Um, <laughs> now, can you tell me the names of the people involved? Just let's start there with their names, and then I'll I'll just react uh, based on their names. I'll tell you who's going to win. Maybe I'll Great. maybe I'll be right. Okay, you here's know. here's one prediction I'm going to ask you about because I know you've at least heard of her. Do you think Serena Williams will surpass a German legend Steffi Graf to get 23 major titles? Currently, they are tied at 22. Do you see Serena at 35? Definitely the greatest of all time, men or women, being able to claw her way to one last major title. Based on no knowledge of the tennis scene whatsoever. Just gut yeah. instinct, Sasha Fergus. 
Hang on there, Miss Thompson. <laughs> um, as somebody who is very good at watching clips on the internet, I have watched Serena Williams, <laughs> and she's very good at that sport. And so I'm going to say that she can do better at it than everyone else. So yes, she will beat the person <laughs> you said. Who I think his name's Steffi. Yes, excellent. What, okay, what's, okay. Up, what's up? What's up with Steffi though? I only... Well, Steffi Graf has not played, picked up a racket. I mean, she's not played professionally in ten years, so she's just holding the record currently. But she is married to Andre Agassi, and she's still alive as of this taping. Oh, I never knew. I, I, that's it's like weird, Paul, isn't it? Paul yeah. Simon. Yeah, that's very weird. It's like the Paul Simon Carrie Fisher thing. Yeah, totally. Or spending each other. Both are quite brilliant. No, but Serena Williams will win everything because I think the only tennis game I've watched top to bottom was a Serena Williams tennis game. Um, and she was, she won all the games with her playing. It was very good. It was very good. <laughs> okay, on that note, you wrote a... Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it... The tipsters can now dial up the, the odds. I'm going to say, I'm calling it right now. Serena, Serena, you a win. A thousand online bets were just launched based on that one. You say it confidently, and that's all that matters. So we'll we'll just jump right right into the piece. Uh, sure. I it was great, really fun to read it. Uh, we were noting how all three people involved here uh, have three names, which yes. which I think is fun. Um, and uh, and yeah, so I feel like one of the um, uh, just just to sort of get at what the thesis of the piece is. It seems like part of it is like the perils of. Um, of metaphor in talking about tennis. Is that right? Um, I mean, I was really trying to dissuade anybody from tying any sport act to any writing act. That's all. Um, Okay. But I would, I'd walk it back a little bit. No, I wouldn't walk it back. I would say we were talking really about the idea of there being a literary sport. And I think there are a bunch of kind of biases implicit in that idea because I, I've grown up reading a lot of baseball writing and mm-hmm. tennis writing, partially because of Wallace, I think, became a thing that people focused on. And it doesn't seem to be a coincidence that we're talking about two very two of the more historically white sports. Huh. And we're talking almost entirely about white writers. And that's now breaking down. Um, and it's been breaking down ever since Hank Aaron, you know, had the home run record. Um, and now tennis, of course, is having, you know, a very serious historical transformation in relationship to that. Um, but when I thought about it, I just realized, like, there is nothing about playing a sport that is like writing. Um, and I did a lot of one kind of sport as a kid and I've done a bunch of writing and there's no part of it. There, there's no overlap whatsoever. Huh. Um, I would say, and this is not in the piece and I say it, but it'll be nice to say it here that when Wallace writes about tennis or anything really in his, in, in his more loopy pieces where he goes, has his very, very long sentences. It does feel a bit like watching tennis because you huh. have to get, I mean, it's not my kind of writing in, in the sense of the kind of writing I look for and I want to do myself is, is always doing a lot of work in a small space is condensing things down. Um, the kind of thing where you can get hit five times in one sentence. And Wallace, I think, is a different kind of writer. But if I give in to that, I like him not as much as a huge fan, but as, I mean, I get it. I understand why he has the position he has. And when he goes on a really long, like a page-long sentence, you know, you go with it. 
the same way when you're watching somebody play a sport, you're thinking, are they really going to somehow get out of this? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you, I mean, I think more about basketball than tennis, but it wouldn't apply to tennis too. Like somebody is going way up and back and they're already out of bounds maybe. And then they save it somehow. And his sentences feel like that. Right. Um, my favorite writing is probably more like, I don't even know what sport it would be like. What's a really short durational Box, sport? Box, boxing, boxing writing, maybe. I thought about I boxing, know. but I yeah. I really hate boxing. Um, <laughs> and also, well, I might be confusing super masculine with short writing. Like that might not be. The, it may just be like right. Uh, yeah. I mean, you. Could, I mean, there are probably a lot of video games that have an exchange that brief that quick. Um, yeah. I think the the main thing, just to summarize the piece for anyone who doesn't. <laughs> have time yeah. to read three pages um writing is so much wandering about in your own head and revising and revising and revising um sometimes i think of the first stage as really just the first draft as being like just chopping vegetables like it's going to be bad uh-huh. just it's don't even worry about it just get it down on the page and mm-hmm. then you start rewriting and you're like oh this is what i can do this is what i can do and sport is the opposite you yeah. have to be completely focused on one thing and you have to re- react in that moment, and there's no revision what, whatsoever. You, you know, talk about the opposite of revision. You have to catch the ball the first time. You don't get to be like, oh, that was my first one. Can we just give it a go again? Can you just just hit that right at me, and I'm going to turn my body? Li-? All right, you know, right. which is the essence of editing and writing. and Or making records, and the only two things I've really done. Um, you, I mean, it's nice to get it on the first try. It's nice to get a huge chunk of a of a take um it tends to feel natural but you're going to hit a point where you're like ah oh, all right new sentence right let's try that again and even getting to that perfect take is usually a lot of work right i mean you've right. gone over it a hundred times prior to that yeah yeah if you, if you if you get to brag i mean anyone who's listened to the insane uh, funhouse box by the stooges which i understand a lot of people don't want to do but you notice that that quote-unquote perfect one unbroken unedited take is take number how many times did they play dirt? Like 35 times. <laughs> right, right. Or loose. Loose? Is it loose or dirt? Anyway, and it's amazing that somebody saved all 35 takes of it. I mean, it's really an exercise in just, I mean, not that many people will probably want to do that. Um, I don't think I'm going to convince anybody to go and buy this box set. Unless, <laughs> can you even buy that anymore? <laughs> I don't know. but I have no idea. <laughs> right. I have no idea. Um, so, so what do you feel like goes... Well, um, I- like like when you do treat it like a sport, you're you're kind of misunderstanding it, right? Both uh, J.J. Sullivan and David Foster Wallace are both straw men because neither of yeah. them said out loud, tennis is a literary sport. I think w- when I had a discussion with uh, David and Caitlin yeah. about it, it was the idea of there being a literary sport. Yes. And yep. you could plug baseball, you could plug in anything. Yep. I was just sort of discouraging people from um, if you were going to make – an argument if you're going to use this phrase just don't right <laughs> uh, that's a good way to put it yeah and to be to be pedantic about it i you know if what you mean to say is there is a lot of good writing about this sport that's a different thing than saying there is a literary sport yeah. because i just think that the act i was saying something in some ways kind of dumb and obvious i should admit that but that what goes into the act of writing is so different from what goes into i think what unifies a lot of disparate sports that was only ever adequate in a couple i don't you know um i can't play more than like half a 
what do you call it when it goes over the net? I can't barely play tennis. I was just thinking, just just trying to dig into like why Wallace is able to pull it off, even though uh, beyond just being a very good writer. And I I wonder if some of it is like he definitely like in that Federer piece, like he really loves detail. Like his last book was going to be about taxes, right, to some large degree, <laughs> and. Um, and I think that like the way what he's doing is really difficult to describe, um, to, to describe rally tennis rallies, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like that's hard. And I just feel like his, maybe his being able to write technically that well and that fluidly kind of releases him from having to go the metaphor writerly route. Given if I give up on my frustration and just deal with it and go with him through these sentences, then it does become a, a kind of a sport where He's laying out these rules for himself where he has to notice. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of writing in Wallace and on Wallace on his own tortured, you know, the habit trail of his mind, which seems to have been an unpleasant place to be. Um, but it's almost yeah. like there are pieces where there are pieces that are actually really easy to read. But then when he goes for those, you know, those long balls, you get the feeling he's set up his own system of rules and he has to come up with. 15 observations before he gets out of this particular foxhole and you're watching him tick them off. Like he's, he's playing a sport like Wallace versus Wallace. Um, and you, and you watch him sort of running <laughs> right. around, grabbing each one, you know, whacking the moles and being like, damn, that's true. Well, that's also true. Okay. And you know, you're nowhere near the full stop. You're nowhere near the period. You, know, you hit a semicolon. He gets another one. You're like, all right, three points up four. You're like, ah, that fifth one, that's a, right. that's a really weird reference. Nope. Five and one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Six and one. You know, and then finally you reach into the page and you're like, well, he did pretty well. You know, it's like watching a slalom run. Um, and that, right. that's not the kind of thing I yeah, go towards, to put but, it. you know, having so many people I admire, admire Wallace. And I should say the reason I don't like him is very, very specific. It wasn't because... I thought Infinite Jest was too long or something. I figure if you're crazy enough to write a book that long, you had a reason. I don't mind book, And there aren't, there really aren't that many books that long, so it's not exactly like a problem worth talking about. Like It's not like every week it's like, oh my God, another thousand-page book. Here we go. Like, it never happens. <laughs> right. exactly. I have like, children to raise. <laughs> uh, it never happens, so I can't say it's a problem. But Because um, he wrote a very strange book with his friend Mark Costello about rap. I just thought it was the worst book about rap or about music <laughs> I'd ever read. And that was unfortunately, I think possibly the first book he published. Um, and that got me off on a huh. bet, uh, the wrong foot with him. And then I came back later and realized, Oh yeah, this is sort of a strange thing to, I mean, I still think it's a terrible book, but um, not really indicative of what he's up to. I was thinking it's kind of interesting like I talk with a lot of people who really, really love tennis and to, to talk to someone who doesn't know as much. Like I yeah, wondered I if I didn't want to pretend that I really know anything about, I mean, I don't even understand the score, like the scoring and the scoring in tennis frustrates me because it always gets to a moment where I'm like, Oh, I got it. I got it. And then something will happen. I'll be like, damn, like, I don't understand why that wasn't a point. Like, ah. right. And there's a thing like, um, Sullivan talks about, uh, how, where the name comes from, where like 1530, 40 is like, has to do with like French currency from the 17th century. Like it's like every explanation about tennis is like uh, as obscure as you can imagine and why it wasn't rectified at some point. Like someone wasn't like, Hey, let's just go with one, two, three, four. Like, let's just do it. This isn't that hard. 
that was so. when I was a kid. The very first hurdle I had was, you know, coming from sports where things were, you know, in my opinion, everything should be just one point, like baseball. Like why, you know, right. you know, in basketball, I was like two points. Like what the hell? Um, <laughs> but but at tennis, I'd be like, what are these numerals? Like what? what I what is going on? Yeah. And I I think that was, um, in many ways, the first the first uh, hurdle. But anyway, thank you for taking the time. Cool, man. Thanks for your time. And I've read many of your pieces over the years and enjoyed them. So thanks. Mm-hmm.